All right, well, welcome back. We continue in our Membership Inquirers class, chapters 22 and 23 of the Confession this evening. Chapter 22 is of Lawful Oaths and Vows. And what I'd like to do is just read a scripture for each of these chapters uh, before we get started as a reference point. I'd like to read Psalm 15 with you, which we sang before prayer this evening. Psalm 15, and um, I'm going to read all of it. But no, you know, for sake of time, actually, since we sang it, let me just read verse... Now, it really will be helpful if I started to give it its context. Let me start with verse 1. A Psalm of David. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes is a vile, a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. It's interesting, verse 5, I've been listening to some sermons through Nehemiah by J. Montgomery Boyce, and he points out that people were taking money from their brethren with usury. That means interest, and not supposed to do that. Um, but notice uh, a couple of things. There's kind of a theme here, mostly uprightly, righteous. But notice verse 2, speaketh the truth, starting in his heart. Then verse 3 says, basically, he doesn't bear false witness, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment, right? Um, he doesn't lie and speak slander about people. But then in verse 4, we, all those things are related, but we want to highlight in verse 4 what we're talking about with oaths and vows tonight. Notice it says, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. The idea of swearing is particularly taking an oath or a vow. And we'll talk about lawful oaths and vows, biblical things, uh, with the confession tonight. But notice, keeping your vow, keeping your oath is so important. So he says, swears to his own hurt and changeth not. He keeps what he swore to do before God and man, even when it becomes difficult to do so. Even when he has to suffer for it, his word matters. He's gonna, all his word, we know from Jesus, we'll see tonight, should be looked at like an oath or a vow. But there is a formal swearing of an oath and vow. And especially when that's done, uh, we go out of our way to keep it, even at our own hurt. Okay? Uh, now turn with me to Romans 13. This is for the next chapter of the civil magistrate. I suppose some would like it if I gave a whole night to that or maybe several nights to that, but I'm not going to. Uh, I don't want to keep you here for uh, 900 years. But if this is something you'd like to go back to, I want to remind you, it, uh, like Rachel's had a certain chapter she'd like to go back to on election. If there's anything you'd like to come back for a special study when we're done with the class, that would be wonderful. Nobody's ever asked us to do that, but I invite that, I welcome that, okay? Or it could be just a little section of one of the chapters. But anyways, I, I hope to whet your appetites enough. I give you lots of footnotes and suggested readings if you want to go deeper on the civil magistrate. That's a pretty, pretty big topic, right? Okay, so Romans 13, though, I want to read for that. We're familiar with it, but it's, it's good to refresh ourselves. Romans 13, verses 1 through 10. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be or are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resisteth shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. 
for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger, to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. I remember, you might remember Abraham last week was uh, mentioning these scriptures because we were talking about tithing last week, and we, we turned to this chapter on that. We return to it tonight, uh, more related to, uh, you know, we were comparing it to the taxes to the government, and there's still tithing to the church, now separated church and state uh, in terms of um, spheres of authority, not like the Old Testament. But uh, what we're going to study first tonight is lawful oaths and vows. So chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Hey, Gabriel, we need to sit down and be good now. No distracting. Good boy. Okay. Lawful oaths and vows, chapter 22 of the Confession. I have a bit of an introduction for you tonight before we start to look at the sections. A Christian should be a person whose word can be trusted. Think about how many problems have arisen in life because people break their word. When a religious community becomes apostate, and when a nation becomes pagan, the first thing discarded is truth. As people of the word, our word should be our bond. That's R.C. Sproul in his commentary on the confession. I also share this with you from J.I. Packer with his commentary. Truth-telling is specified as integral to authentic godliness. Truth-telling becomes a fundamental element in true religion and in true love of one's neighbor. Okay, well, let me read for you section 1 of the Confession of Faith, chapter 22 of Lawful Oaths and Vows. First paragraph is brief. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship wherein, upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promiseth, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. So again, we're talking about oaths first. Uh, Recall, the Westminster divines were reminded of their oath every Monday morning. Look down to footnote 397. Every Monday morning, now remember, they did this for seven years, putting our Westminster standards together. And every Monday morning, they were reminded they took a formal oath of how they were to approach the whole work. And down at the bottom, Van Dixorn shares, footnote 397, uh, in an ordinance of the Lords and Commons assembled in Parliament, printed before the finished standards, we see the vow every Monday of the assembly took was this. This is the vow they took every Monday, or you can say an oath to one another, but a vow before God. I will maintain nothing in point of doctrine, but what I believe to be most agreeable to the word of God, nor in point of discipline, but what may make most for God's glory and the peace and good of the church, this church. So they took that vow, that oath, every week. 
And again, they met for seven years. Okay, back to uh, my explanation of section one of the chapter. Uh, Oaths promote truth in a world of liars. An oath is something we see God himself do in Genesis 15 and 22, which is referred to in Hebrews 6.13. God even takes an oath. He obliges himself to his people through the sacrament. Uh, And then in Psalm 132.11, he swears to David. He'll give him Jesus. By the way, we just finished our study on uh, biblical dating and marriage last night. We finished the last chapter of Ruth. And it's so amazing. It just ends with... The great-great-grandson, I think it is, is David. And the whole, the whole book ends. And we're like to go, wow. Because you think about all they sacrificed, all the obedience, all the right things they did, and they ended up having David. And we know David is the one who is the, uh, the king, the type of Christ, the conquering king. And God swears, such as in Psalm 132, 11, I will make him rule. He will sit on your throne, but he'll be the son of David. That's what they called out to him a lot. The son of David, son of David, the Messiah, as we sang about in Psalm 2 tonight, that all the kings of the earth should be bowing to. Okay, and then also Christ took a vow or an oath in Matthew 26, 63 to 64. He formally answers the, the question of the high priest, I believe, and he formally says, I am the son of God. But it's, it's in a kind of a court. He's kind of in a trial situation. Uh, I'm going to just breeze over these. You can look at them deeper. And Paul also, such as in Acts 18, verse 18, they, they took oaths and vows. So we see the example, even of God and Christ and Paul. Uh, this is important because uh, some Christians deny that oaths and vows are legitimate. Uh, it also is something men do before God to other men, such as when Abraham requires it of his servant in Genesis 24. Remember, he says, I want you to go find a wife for Isaac. But I want, he says, put your hand under my thigh. Isn't that something to, I want you to swear, put your hand under my thigh. You swear to me that you will not get him a wife from the world, from the Canaanites. You get him from my brethren. And the servant even says, I will, but I want to qualify the vow. What if I can't find anyone? If you can't find anyone, then you can come back empty-handed. So the servant's even smart. Like, I'm not going to swear to something. What if I can't? God's in control of this, right? But that's how serious he takes it. Let me qualify the oath before I take it, right? Uh, In an oath, we call on God to be witness for what we promise to someone by swearing our truthfulness and to hold us to it in being trustworthy. We're saying, God as my witness, God hold me accountable. I will keep my promise to you. Now, God is a witness to our words anyways, but it's a formal saying, God, help me. Uh, God is my witness. I make this promise to you. Yes, in this case, Abraham, I'm going to go find a wife for you, but I promise that I won't bring a wife back from the wrong people. And if I can't find the right one, my vow is I'll come back with that exception, that understanding. Uh, Sometimes exceptions can be implied. There's some things to talk about with that, but notice this. Lying, that means not keeping your word, blasphemes God. When you break your promise, you're taking God's name in vain. No habitual liar will make it to heaven. Revelation 21, 27. Somebody who lies all the time, I don't care how much they want to say they're holy Christians, whatever they do, if they lie all the time, they will not find themselves in heaven. They're faking it. Uh, what does Jesus say? Many of you will say, I, you said, Lord, Lord, but I never knew you. You prophesied in my name, but I never knew you. And a lot of times it'll be seen because they lie all the time. 
doesn't matter how much they play church if they're habitual liars. That's what Revelation says, but it's not only there. Section 2, Westminster chapter 22, section 2. The name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old. So a lawful oath being imposed by lawful authority in such matters ought to be taken. Now I want to remind you, I'm giving you all the scriptures that the confession gives you. So I'm going to leave it to you if you want to look at some of these scriptures. But they're saying that you should only swear by God's name to make an oath or a vow. Now, of course, you want to, don't use his name in vain, but you can make an oath or a vow. Uh, and we're still talking about oaths. Um, and, and, and you shouldn't do it rashly. But on the other hand, there are times where it's right to expect it of you by lawful authority. And you should do it. Okay. So next explanation under this. Be careful not to swear by God vainly or rashly without thinking and then find you are lying or that you get yourself regrettably into something that God will bind you to keep. Take your vows and oaths seriously. You know, I can't help but think about a person who told us a little while ago, don't ask me to keep my vows to the church. I know you always do that. Don't even ask me. And they said, I didn't even believe this when I came into the church. I don't believe it now and I never will. And I couldn't help but shiver because that person was admitting they lied when they took a vow before God. They would have been better to say, I don't agree with this. I don't believe this. I don't want to be here. That doesn't mean they can't volunteer uncertainties. But to, to take that vow without any disclaimer, disclosure, and to say, I don't want to be held to my vow, is to absolutely acknowledge you don't know scripture or you don't care about what the Bible says. We're going to see. And, and I want to encourage you. We're taking a membership class. What's the thing at the end? You're going to take your queries, your membership vows. This doesn't mean that you can't say, boy, later I didn't really understand that. I didn't recognize that, though we're trying to be thorough. But one of the things you say is how you will submit to the leadership of your church to work those things out, to study them in decency and order, respecting the leadership, just as the scriptures tell us to. See Abraham's servant as an example of first wisely qualifying the details. Again, Genesis 24. Be reverent in taking oaths because God is your witness. That's how you have to be, whether it's in marriage, which, by the way, that's something nobody takes seriously, right? My dad said, we're going to get to this next week, actually, divorce and marriage and divorce is the chapter next week, chapter 24. My dad says, you know, a lot of, sadly, my dad is now divorced, but um, uh, I remember my dad saying when I was growing up at work, so many young people at that time, probably 30s, 20s, were saying, oh, you know, we'll get married, and we can always get divorced. But you, in your vows, say till death do you part. Sickness and health, better or worse. But everybody asks, yeah, no, that doesn't really matter. You can get out of it. No, God, what does Jesus say in Matthew 19? I'm jumping ahead, but what God has joined together, don't put asunder. But it's related to your vows, your oath. You take a, so nobody thinks that what you say matters anymore, but God does. Try to imagine, because God is the one that joins it together. Matthew 19, right? God is our witness. He's here witnessing it. You've got to recognize it's almost like Jesus is standing right there, but the Holy Spirit is right here. And he is saying, I'm paying attention to what you say, and I'm going to hold you accountable to it. 
As God is the only absolute truth and authority, you must not swear by anything or anyone else, including your mother's grave. Now, this kind of gets to when Jesus says, don't say you uh, make a vow or an oath by this or by that, but let your yes be yes, your no be no. And he's not saying, as we'll get into it later, that you can't take an oath or a vow, but what he is saying is don't qualify it by the temple or what's offered on the temple. Or don't say, you know, don't you hear people say, I swear on my mother's grave. Well, the people who are saying that are usually the worst liars. And that's why they want to convince you so much because they know they're liars and they don't even trust themselves. And so they want to try to make you trust and they're always going to not break. They're never going to keep their promise to you. You don't swear on your mother's grave. You don't swear on anything. You only swear God as my witness because there's nothing higher, right? And that's Jesus' argument in Matthew. Yes, Josh. Go ahead, yeah. Right, that we should always be we should always be speaking as if it's an oath or a vow. But then there's time for formal oaths and vows. Yeah, and and I'm going to get into that a little bit more. And I, and let me know if it answers it enough for you. Okay, and no problem. And uh, ultimately, your word ought to be enough. And that's kind of what you're asking right now. That Jesus is ultimately saying, be trustworthy. Don't swear casually, and don't say honestly, but say frankly. Now, I, I remember, this is where I learned this. And Becky, you remember my story, I think. She's, yeah, she's been in my class a lot. Okay, so I was trying to get a job years ago, out of college, right? And I was just doing my networking, going through the phone book, calling anybody that had a company that related to what I was looking to do for a living. And this really lovely gentleman takes me out to lunch. I learned pretty quickly, has no entire, and has absolutely no plan to give me a job. He just seemed interested to hang out with me. And he told me about all his stuff he used to do in Quebec, it's crazy, you know, I'm like, okay, I'll be patient here. But I, I said honestly a lot, and I've never forgotten what he said to me. He said, don't say honestly. You know, when you start a sentence, honestly, what you should say is frankly. Frankly means I'm going to be direct with you. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be real straight with you. But don't say honestly, because he says it suggests that you might otherwise lie. I thought that was, this is a pagan speaking to me, but but I've never forgot that. Say frankly, don't say honestly. That's my suggestion. Because then it sounds like, well, I'm going to be honest with you in this case. But that doesn't mean I won't lie to you other times. Right? That's pretty, I think that's good advice. I got all these other things in my mind, but I'm going to try to wait because I think they're coming up later, okay? (laughs) Um, Okay, section three. Chapter 22, section three. Whosoever taketh an oath duly to consider, oh, excuse me, Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able to able and resolved to perform. Yet is it a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just, being imposed by lawful authority. Wow. So you've got to be careful not to swear to something that's not right. But there are some things that are right, and you'd be wrong not to. Okay. So duly consider how serious it is to take an oath, and make sure you know what you are doing, such as giving a testimony in court. What do you have to do in court? What's the first thing they ask you to do? At least in America. I'm curious. You have to tell me in Brazil. Raise your hand and put your other hand on the Bible. I think we still do that. 
Do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. You see, that's an oath. Yes, you're oathing, you're saying an oath. I promise to tell the truth. What's scary is, uh, still, people lie all the time under oath. That's called perjury. That'll send you to jail, <laughs> let alone God's judgment, right? Okay, so take it seriously. It is a sin to bind yourself to keeping an oath that is not good and just, such as when David makes an oath to kill Nabal, but Abigail saved him from sinning by keeping him from fulfilling it. David oaths, I'm going to kill that guy. Abigail comes up very carefully, later becomes his wife. Please don't. And by the way, God kills Nabal not long after. He brings justice. But that's for uh, So David made an oath that he, he, he even says, thank you for keeping me from sinning. So I shouldn't have made that, and I can't fulfill that, okay? However, it is a sin to refuse an oath touching anything that is good and just being imposed by lawful authority, the confession says. Van Dixon points out that this last line was sadly deleted by the American Presbyterians. This is one of the places we're going to see a few more coming up in subsequent chapters. The Americans got rid of this phrase, because Americans don't like to have anybody tell them what to do. <laughs> right, uh, we don't. We have the original Westminster standards. We keep the the full. We think that there there's nothing wrong with anything. Uh, we're not claiming inerrancy like on the level of the Word of God, but this is not incorrect. But the American Presbyterians got rid of it. Uh, you won't see it in the. So that's the something to remember that as you talk to your brothers and sisters in the Reformed faith and our Westminster standards folks. Sadly, I haven't found too many of them pay much attention to it, anyways. But but if they do. You need, to you need to know that there are going to be some times where theirs is not the same as ours. We stay with the originals, the old paths that are correct. <laughs> uh, but I do think this is where American Presbyterians erred, as well as a couple other places. Okay, so that's just something to know. But uh, if, you, if your allegiance, let's put it this way, if your allegiance given to the military is understood as subservient to Christ, if the judge understands, I make a pledge to the country, but it, I need you to understand my highest authority is Jesus Christ. By the way, my, Wayne Spear, Dr. Spear, De De Debbie knows, used to be pastor out here. He was my professor of systematic theology. He said that, you know, this was a big thing in the RP world. I can't take an oath or vow necessarily if they think that means the country is my highest authority. But he went out of his way to explain to the government, I think he was going to work for the U.S. Postal Service or something, I just need to understand, or it was to a judge before he went in the military, something like that, my highest allegiance is Jesus Christ. So as long as I'm taking this pledge and you understand that I'm not pledging this above Jesus Christ, this is important as it relates to being members in masonry, which is forbidden, by the way, in our in our place. <laughs> um, and the judge said, well, that's understood. It's understood that Christ is, and God is your highest authority. But he wanted it to be explicit for conscience sake. Yes, Abraham. What's that? Say that again. Masonry. Yeah, Freemasonry. You take vows to secrecy with them as your highest authority so you could never tell your church or your elders what you're up to. And, a lot, and there's a lot of idolatry and all kinds of bad stuff in it. Um, but ultimately, your highest authority is them, and you can never forsake your weird secrecy to them, even if it would cause you to violate something with the scriptures. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, some Presbyterian denominations, particularly in the South, allow for it, um, but it's not to be tolerated. Okay. Uh, section four of the confession. Section four. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation 
That means you're saying one thing, but you mean another. People do this all the time. They use a word, but they don't mean it. By the way, in the liberal times in the 20s, when a lot of ministers were taking their vows that they swear to the confession, the Westminster Standards, resurrection, um, uh, what's, uh, uh, oh, help me out, the birth of Christ, uh, the, the conception, um, virgin birth, Different words that are common, we understand, they mean so, they intentionally meant something different when they used those words. They didn't actually believe it anymore. But they would use the words and in their own mind know what they mean by that, explaining it away. And they would, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, deceitfully get through their examinations and stuff. So no equivocation. You know what it means, you know what they mean it means when they're asking you the question. Uh, or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt, nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. If it's a lawful oath, it doesn't matter if you said it to an unbeliever, a sinful person. Uh, if it's a lawful oath, you've you got to keep it. Okay. So crossing fingers behind your back or not really meaning it does not excuse you of what you commit to with your mouth. While you must not take an oath that would cause you to sin, once you make a lawful oath, even if it is to non-Christians, you are bound to perform it even to your, quote, own hurt. Keeping your word shows you are noble. For, quote, he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own herd and changeth not. Psalm 15, verse 4. That was talking about a noble person. Keeps their oath no matter what. The confession is teaching against Anabaptists and Quakers who believe you may never take an oath due to Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Now, uh, I have preached on this, so maybe one thing, Josh, is I'll refer you to my sermon on that text if, if I don't satisfy you now. But this is a typical great question, and um, for sake of time, I'm going to let uh, Williamson be enough for you for now. But I encourage you to, uh, to go to sermons on the text on that on our sermon audio page. Williamson explains this text in answer to... Anabaptists and Quakers would say you can never take a vow or an oath in any way. One of these false interpretations of the Jews was that only some oaths were binding, depending on what men swore by. Christ said that, to the contrary, such distinctions were vain and iniquitous, and that all oaths are binding. So again, oh, well, if, if you swear on the temple, that's one thing, but if you swear on this, you can get out of it. They were making loopholes to get out of their oaths. And so Jesus was criticizing Fake oaths, oaths where you thought you're coming up with these things, man-made, rich, uh, man-made traditions that I can get out of my oath. And he's saying, no, your oath is always binding. You can't get out of it. That's what he's talking about. What's more, quote, if I swear an oath by anything less than God, I am attributing divine dimensions to it, which is idolatry. And that's uh, R.C. Sproul. Section 5 of the Confession. A vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. Notice the word religion. Again, particularly thinking about vows and oaths as members and as officers of the church. Uh, In the context, it's really more of a civil thing, but marriage, uh, it's often done in the context of a a church service, so to speak, but not a worship service. Um, But notice uh, a vow is more directed towards God. An oath is directed to a person. God's the witness of an oath. 
God is the one you're promising to directly in a vow. Now, membership vows are really kind of both. It's to one another as the body, and it's to God as the head, okay? Because he's head of his church. Top of page 149. A vow is similar to an oath, and it should be treated seriously as described above. What is the difference? An oath concerns man's duty to man. A vow concerns man's duty to God. They're both a promise. It's just who you're promising to, to whom you're promising. In an oath, man calls God to witness and to judge what he says or promises to men. In a vow, man makes a solemn promise to God. That's Williamson explaining. Or as Packer explains, Oaths are solemn declarations that invoke God as a witness of one's statements and promises, inviting him to punish should one be lying. Vows to God are the devotional equivalent of oaths, that is, it's directly to God. As both relate to God, both are acts of worship. Section 6 of chapter 22. It is not to be made, uh, it is not to be made to any creature but to God alone. And that it may be accepted, it is to be made voluntarily out of faith and conscience of duty, in way of thankfulness for mercy received, or for the obtaining of what we want, whereby we more strictly bind ourselves to necessary duties, or to other things, so far and so long as they may fitly conduce thereunto. By the way, before I continue, I know I'm on vows now, but just to make it a little more, even a little more obvious what we take for granted if we're not thinking too hard about it, oaths and vows, why is Fernanda my wife and no other woman is my wife? I took a formal oath and vow with her, and it's also in writing, right? Otherwise, well, I'm going to go, you could, other women could say, they're my wife. No, you didn't. I have only a formal oath and vow. See, it's the same. So that relates to other things. Why can we not really discipline anyone in our church? Um, we can keep people from partaking of the Lord's Supper if they're not in our church or not members in a church in good standing. But we can't really do anything else. We can't baptize their children. We can't discipline them in other ways because they're not under our formal care. Because a, a covenant is not only a commitment to the church, it's our commitment as elders to them. And that doesn't exclude discipline and different ways of dealing with them. So we understand this. Okay, uh, my explanation under section six. A vow differs from an oath in that it may only be made to God and only voluntarily. Some oaths can be bound on us. A vow tends to have more of a if-then aspect, to be contingent on a response from God fulfilling a request. Generally, you vow your obedience and worship to God alone for his mercifully covenanting with you. Specifically, you might vow to do something in thanks should God answer a specific prayer, like Hannah with Samuel. What did Hannah vow to do? If you give me a child... I will give him to the temple service. And she did. She did not go back on that. She gave her son after she weaned him to the temple. And then God blessed her with a whole bunch more children. But she formally vowed, God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to your service in the temple. Do not make empty vows you don't intend to keep if God answers. Deuteronomy 23:21 really warns about this and we'll get there. It is better not to vow than to vow and not keep it. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 to 5. Now, that's almost the text we could have gone to on this topic. 
Um, but I, I think the positive in Psalm 15, verse 4, is, is, is a good way to go. But a really important place to go, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 5, it goes out of its way to say, do not make a vow to God if you do not intend to keep it. It would be better not to vow to God than to vow and then not keep it. Jephthah's vow. You know about Jephthah and Judges? This is a really challenging text. Jephthah is an example of how, uh, if it is not an unlawful vow, you must keep it. Judges 11.29 and following. Now here's the challenging part of the text. What did Jephthah vow to do? Kill the first person who came out his door. I'm going to argue no, but that's what everybody worries about. Now remember what did we say? You cannot vow and make an oath to do things unlawful. I don't believe he actually killed his daughter. Um, but I believe the scripture is deliberately, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A literal vague to make you think about how serious it is to take a vow. I'm going to give you a special reading, uh, Linda, to help satisfy that concern. And hopefully I get there to preach one day. But it looks, go ahead, yeah. Dr. B, oh, phew, thank you for backing me. Not that you're really going at me, but, but I like what you saw. Uh, I keep trying to call you Fernanda. Sorry, I'm tired. Linda. <laughs> um, uh, I like the way in your face you were concerned because, yeah, Jephthah has to keep his vow. But if he has to keep his vow, it's still a serious issue. And his daughter knows it's a serious issue. Um, she, yeah, she asked for some time, yeah. But he does not sacrifice his daughter. I think... I think that's not the right conclusion, but I think the scripture is a little vague to make you go <gasps> and realize how important it is about making a rash vow. Now, again, in the suggested readings, I have something for you. I don't know if you can find it easily. It's in my seminary in Pittsburgh, but yes, Abraham, real fast. So if it's an unlawful vow, then you don't have to. You're not, no, no. If someone says, I'm going to kill, uh, you know, so-and-so, I vow to do that, uh, you can't make that vow. You can't say, I'm going to go, I mean, there's just defense, there's lawful war, but say, you know, I, I vow that I'm going to go out and kill so-and-so passing the gate right now. I just make an oath and vow I'm going to keep it to impress my friends, so now I have to do it. No way. Okay, go ahead, Isaac, real fast. That's exactly right. Yes, that's exactly right, because it's not lawful, may not do it. Okay, back to the notes. We rightly heed John Calvin's words, quote, anyone who obeys my advice will undertake only sober and temporary vows. Temporary is a good idea too. Don't tie yourself to something you may want to get out of someday. However, every true believer must make and keep at least one vow, namely to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel and to walk in newness of life with him. That's what Williamson draws to our attention. Your membership vows are made before men, so they're oaths, but unto King Jesus. See, you have to take your vows to King Jesus in a visible church somewhere. You can't say, I don't want to be part of his church, right? Um, and that's why you transfer your membership if you want to go somewhere else. But you're taking a vow to Jesus, and you're submitting to him in the visible church. Yes, Josh. Uh-huh. Um, is that the same with marriage? Yeah. We're giving vows to Jesus, not mm -hmm. only to our spouse. Yeah, I, I kind of anticipate that question. Let me come back to the next week, partly so I can study it a little more carefully. I think we do get to that too. But uh, of course, the exception, at least in Matthew 19, would demonstrate that, that there 
you know, there's a mutual consent and a contract. And in the contract, like if you sign a contract in business, I guess I'm going to try to answer a little bit. You know, there's understood things in the writing. If you don't live up to this, anytime, like, okay, so for instance, our radio program, we have the right in the contract to get out of it in 30 days, and so does the radio station. And if there's certain things we do that violates the rules, they can get rid of us. So there, there are understandings to certain kinds of things. And so, for instance, back to Genesis 24, the servant says, I make a vow, but only if I can... So if a person's unfaithful, they violated their vow, and then, then they're the person who's the innocent party is allowed to say, you've broken, your, you've broken our covenant, and you're allowed to get out. That's kind of a quick answer. There's more to it than that. I was more asking, is it just a misnomer in our society that they use the term vow, or is it more of a nomen? Uh, well, it, it, it probably would be more accurate to say an oath. You're thinking very carefully here with how I'm describing things, but it's still a vow before God, right? Yeah, so it's kind of both in a sense, too. No problem. Good question. The Lord's Supper is the renewing of your baptism vows. See Psalm 22, 25, 50, 14, 56, 12, 16, 15, and 8, 6, 6, 13, 116, 13, 14, and 18. Sorry, you got the notes there. <laughs> okay, section 7, and I think this is the last part of this chapter. Yeah. Uh, and hang in there with me. I got a little bit of uh, Thomas Watson quotes to hold out before you to keep you going with me here. No, you're being great listeners. But. Uh, section 7. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God. Or what would hinder any duty therein commanded? Or which is not in his own power, and for the performance whereof he hath no promise of ability from God? In which respects, popish monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. Particularly saying, don't make a vow of singleness and celibacy. And by the way, what did Martin Luther do? He was a priest. What did he do once they had the Reformation? Married a nun. Oh, that Catholic Church was mad about that. Okay, um, my understanding is they brought her and some other nuns, they snuck them in. I mean, not to get married, but they snuck themselves in because of persecution and stuff. Uh, I think it was in some wine barrels or something, you know. So, Okay, and by the way, I don't think he wanted to marry for a long time, not because he didn't think he could, uh, a lot of the reformers they didn't want to get they didn't want to be bothered with marriage they wouldn't be able to study and write and everything, but uh, finally they convince him you should marry her, and uh, and then it's just lovely to see how he speaks of Catherine, Van help me on, Van no not Leuven, <laughs> uh, I boy I should have just said Catherine Van something okay top of page one fifty, you may not vow to do anything God forbids in His Word, nor what you do not have the power to fulfill. Neither may you vow to do anything that would keep you from obeying God. Now, here's something. Wives and children may not vow without their husband's or father's consent. That's Numbers 30, verses 1 to 8. The father can overrule. The husband can overrule. And that's to protect them from making a rash vow they shouldn't have done. So even if your child like, makes a vow at school? Yeah, now obviously in the New, you know, New Testament times and non-theocracy times, you know, Somebody vows to go into the military. Don't think that a parent in our situation anymore can do anything about it. But parent, children and wives ought to be considering they shouldn't be thinking about making vows or oaths outside of their headship of their husband and father who is supposed to be there guiding and protecting them and, and really making sure, do you know what you're about to do? Right. Um, okay, some closing thoughts by Thomas Watson. So here's your, here's your Thomas Watson nuggets, okay? 
First, from the Ten Commandments about the Ninth Commandment, not to bear false witness. He says, there is nothing more contrary to God than a lie. Absalom told his father a lie when he said that he was going to pay his vow at Hebron, and this was a preface to his treason. By the way, later, all the bad stuff he did, including that kind of stuff, false vows and things, God let him... God, God, God hung him up, strung him up on a tree. How did that happen, by the way? Do you remember? His hair. He had really big hair. And while I was right, his hair got stuck in a branch, and he was hanging there, and somebody stuck him to death, right? And it's kind of amazing. Joab, thing. it's a kind of amazing story, isn't it? Uh, um, it's almost like God goes out of his way to demonstrate, don't do that, <laughs> right? Let alone just being an ungrateful son. Boy, you should see what uh, I read the fifth commandment comments today by Watson. Reread it for some stuff on the civil government. You should see what he talks about related to children honoring their parents. Yeah, Abe. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know that it was that long, but that's a good, yeah, that's a good point. I like your thinking. Okay, uh, let me continue. Consider your every word, this is Thomas Watson, consider your every word an oath. That's Jerome he's quoting. When thou speakest, let thy word be as authentic as thy oath. Imitate God, who is the pattern of truth. Pythagoras, being asked what made men like God, answered when they speak the truth. Psalm uh, 15.2 That which is condemned in the ninth commandment is swearing to what is false, as when men take a false oath. Love no false oath. Quoting Zechariah uh, eight seventeen. Look at chapter five, verses two to four. Also, the devil has taken great possession of those who dare to swear to a lie. Those who take an oath or a vow and they know they're lying about it, he says that's the devil's in that. A perjured. Listen to this. A perjured person. This is someone who lies under oath. A perjured person is the devil's excrement. Hey, children, just in case you're not sure what he's saying. The devil's poop. That's pretty nasty to consider, isn't it? Uh, I know he's speaking figuratively, but uh, I, I assume if anyone's excrement is the most disgusting and smelly, it would be the devil's, you know, though he's a spirit. We know this is a figurative expression. Um, it's pretty powerful. Okay, from a body of divinity. That's the main thing we've been using in this study. There is nothing true but what is in God or comes from God. God's truth is as it is taken from his veracity, that means truthfulness, in making good his promises. God that cannot lie hath promised, Titus 1-2. God can't lie. Mercy takes the promise, truth fulfills it. He can as well part with his deity as his verity. That means if he could be a liar, he couldn't be God. He can't deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. A person of honor cannot be more affronted or provoked than when he is not believed. He who tells a lie makes himself like the devil. A liar is not fit to live in a commonwealth. He's saying... You should, a liar doesn't belong in society. He goes on to say, how can you converse with a man when you cannot believe what he says? Now, by the way, I, I've shared this before. Back when one of our presidents was uh, going under uh, trial 
for ultimately whether or not he lied to the country under oath. I remember I was working at the Pittsburgh Zoo on a Saturday. I was painting some walls for one of the other people at the zoo to be able to have their wedding there because the, the uh, what is it, the, uh, help me out here. can't think of the word. I'm getting tired. The union wouldn't allow. So I wasn't in the union. I said, forget it. I'm painting their walls. They're going to have a wedding. And while I'm painting, I'm listening to the trials. And I remember one of my coworkers, one of the fellow, uh, I think she was in middle management. I was in senior at the time. I remember her saying, I don't know what the problem is. We all lie. I said, if you're telling me that it's okay to lie and you have no problem lying, how can I ever trust you as I work with you for anything? Didn't seem to faze her. But if somebody tells you what's the problem with lying, you ever going to feel like you can trust them? Now, we're guilty of all the commandments, but I don't think any of us want to say it's okay. God help us to be more truthful. Um, he says this. This is really powerful. Oh, excuse me. Lying shuts men out of heaven. Again, we saw that Revelation 22.15. This is powerful. Counterfeiting friendship is worse than counterfeiting money. Hey, by the way, what is counterfeit money worth? Nothing. On the fifth commandment, and how this is powerful, on the fifth commandment and how a parent can provoke his children to wrath, applying Colossians 3.21, you could go to Ephesians 6. How can we, parents, make our children uh, be uh, frustrated with us? He says this, when a parent does anything which is sordid and unworthy, which casts disgrace upon himself and his family, as to defraud or take a false oath. When our children see us make promises that we don't keep, that's one of the ways we make them frustrated. We exasperate them because they say, you're a liar. You don't believe any of this stuff. And you just actually knew you were lying when you made that vow or oath. So what are we doing going to church? Because I just saw you make a, I just saw you lie under oath. Maybe like in a contract in business or something, right? And children get to be like, I don't need this Christianity. My parents a joke. All right, now to 23 of the civil government. I am going to try to race through it for sake of time, but I'm hoping to move on to next week. There's a lot of footnotes, so it's not as long as it looks. Again, for those of you who would like me to take about a month or maybe a year on this, sorry, not going to do it. Not now, but we can come back to it another time, okay, if you'd like to. Well, we'll have eternity. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, then we'll just be praising the true king and it won't, won't be any big deal. All right, of the civil magistrate, that means of the civil government, that means our government, president, uh, you know, judicial system, uh, representatives, senates, local governors, uh, councilmen, all those things, of the civil government, meaning they are rulers and authorities, not in the church, but in the state, and we're members of both, and there's an overlap, okay? All right, let me read for you. Noah Webster, I got this from the girls years ago from one of their classes with homeschooling. Noah Webster wrote, that's the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary. It is clear to me any government that intends to protect the rights of free people must be based on Christianity. I'll just let that sink in. R.C. Sproul notes, the central motive in the tapestry woven through the Old and New Testaments is that of the kingdom of God. The culmination of the ministry of Christ was the ascension. At the center of God's work of redemption is a political consideration, the reign of God. The kingdom of God does not exist by referendum. It is not a democracy. By the way, a lot of people don't understand that in church. Jesus Christ rules his church. 
He delegates his authority through the elders. We only can do what he says. It's not a democracy. That's why we don't have congregational votes except for officers and extremely important things because uh, it's not we do whatever we want. It's what we do what Jesus says. Okay? Uh, he goes on to say, it is rooted and grounded in a principle of absolute monarchy, absolute sovereignty, where the Lord God Almighty reigns. And he says this, America, Americans resist that. It is in our DNA with our history to resist authority. It's the beginning of our identity as a nation. And, you know, you got certain states that it's still part of their themes and their flags, right? And uh, I remember, this is, this is more about well, no, it, it relates. I remember R.C. Sproul quoting uh, John Guest, uh, kind of an Episcopal uh, pastor. I've been to his big church in Swickley, PA, very, very well-to-do area. And I remember he was an evangelist, and R.C. Sproul's referring to him saying when he first came to America from England, he said he was visiting a lot of little quaint places where you can get used things, knickknacks and souvenirs. And he said, I saw so many things that had these messages about anti-authority with the government, he says, how am I ever going to witness about King Jesus to this nation? They don't want authority over them. But that's what it is to have Jesus Christ as your Savior. It comes with being your Lord and King. Psalm 2 that we sang today, right? Okay. Um, may we not resist it, and we don't need to change anything in the confession. All right? Section 23, uh, chapter 23, section 1. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good, and to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. Top of page 151. What is civil government? J.I. Packer succinctly describes it as, quote, the lawful use of force to enforce just laws. By the way, that's what authority is, whether it is in the family or whether it is in the church or whether it is in the state. Authority is about enforcing the law. Civil government is an extension of family government and is ordained by God. That's not all it is, by the way, but that's, that's the main thing, right? Uh, thus we are responsible to honor government, even ungodly ones, for God puts them there. Jesus paid taxes to Caesar. We are told to obey the magistrates, Romans 13, 1-4, Titus 3, 1, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 17, among others. Who they have the power of the sword by God. No, Paul wrote in the context of the oppress oppressive Roman Empire, Nero no less. People like to use the excuse, oh, but we're under a bad government. By the way, I love how my wife, Fernanda, always helps me appreciate my country more than I have, and I still have plenty of criticisms, but she constantly says how much better this is than where she's from, including the government. And uh, we want to think we have a corrupt government. You know what? Wait a little while. Fernanda's doing like this. Oh, you have no clue. You want to find out? Well, if we keep trying to live for the world and make our government worldly and push financial benefit as opposed to righteousness and holiness under God, we'll find out. We have no idea how good we have it. We like to use excuses of, you know, our government's bad, therefore I don't have to obey them. That's not what the Bible says. Anarchy is anti-Christian. Churches that protest the funerals of soldiers sin against King Jesus. That's something that happens in our country. 
Government is the ordained minister of God in the civic sphere of life to punish evil and promote good, including capital punishment. That means executing people. People who just shot other people should be executed very quickly. Once it is proven in court that they did it, they should be executed. And one of the reasons it keeps happening more and more is because they know they'll just get a free ride for life in prison if they survive it. They'll just start claiming mental illness. No, they weren't so mentally ill when they knew what they were doing, carefully planning the whole thing, were they? Thus, England still refers to government branches like the quote-unquote ministry of defense, for instance. It's a ministry under God. The idea of separation of church and state is not that the nation should not be Christian, but that the state has a sphere of authority that the church does not and the church has a sphere of authority that the state does not. But both cooperate under the reign of King Jesus. By the way, we're going to get into uh, church government later, okay? in subsequent chapters. For instance, when a man commits murder, he should be excommunicated from the church, if unrepentant, and executed by the state, even if repentant. Christians, who, by the way, if you don't like that, there's a lot. I point you to Genesis chapter 9. That's exactly the reason. If you kill someone, it's in the image of God, you should be executed. That's God's word. And that is not ceremonial or judicial law. Yes, Abe, real quick, because I want to keep moving. And for other things in the Bible. Yeah, other things. Even if it's not yeah, that's the difficult thing. Now, now let me qualify that. That's the, we could go to the chapter on, on law again. Uh, not everything necessarily carries over, but it does bring the question, what other evil sins that in the Old Testament they were to be killed for should still have that same punishment today? Yeah, I would, well, or if they're of a certain sexual inclination, should they be executed? Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, yeah. Uh, but we're not, we don't believe that theonomy is correct, so that gets at and answers things we've talked about earlier with the law. But it does bring up that issue. Uh, but I want to I keep it focused on the government does have, the government in the New Testament is not the same as the church like it was in the Old Testament. They still have the requirement to punish sin. How they punish, to what degree, a lot of debate on where that plays out in the New Testament times. But it's their job to have the sword, not the church. What that, maybe the most important thing is, if somebody does a horrible sin in church, Elder, Elder Maxwell and Elder Renner and I, we can't go after them with a sword. We can't kill them. <laughs> not that we would want to do that, you know. Um, but it's not the churches. In the Old Testament, theocracy the church and the state were one, and it was an all involved. Yes. So, just to clarify, they, that in the Constitution, the United States mm-hmm. Bill of Rights, separation of church and state is to protect the church from the government overstepping their bounds and not limiting the church's influence on the government. Correct. Yeah, I would also argue it's the other way to protect the government from the church over taking it too much of its. Overstepping its bounds, yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. If you go and you read it directly, it never says that there can't be a state church. Although I do think some of the fathers probably did have that in view, but it's not explicitly commanding that. Yeah, um, Christians who feel uncomfortable with a nation acting alongside the church and under Christ need to recognize what is happening in our nation and heed the words of Gordon Clark: "Secularism eventuates in dictatorship and totalitarian rule." And by the way, if we want to pretend that we can't have a Christian religion in our nation, don't be surprised when eventually it's formally Muslim. Or, how do you deal with the fact that they want to take the Ten Commandments off the walls of our courts, buildings? 
if we're going to say that it's neutral and there's no official religion, who's to say? And, by the way, I think it was in Michigan, the Satanist religion demanded to have a statue of Satan looking like a goat next to the Ten Commandments. It's only fair, all religions, and then you can do that. Whatever religion, no, you've got to pick. We have to pick Christ. Okay. For instance, it was right for President Eisenhower, who had recently been baptized as a Presbyterian, to insert the words under God in the Pledge of Allegiance in 1954, the Christian God. Our Pledge of Allegiance did not used to say under God. A Presbyterian, a converted, baptized Presbyterian, President of the United States, got it in there. The RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, had ministers meet with Abraham Lincoln to try to get an amendment to the Constitution recognizing Christ as king of the nation. That would have been great. There's no perfect system. I know people will abuse these things, but you've got to recognize the context of our Westminster standards is that's what it was. It was a Christian nation. And there are other countries such as in Africa that have declared themselves to be a Christian nation. If we did that, I don't think abortion would ever have been tolerated, for instance. And gay marriage would never have been legalized. But when the people are God of the nation. The Reformation happened in states and churches. And the magisterial reformers especially understood state church. They just said, we're no longer going to be a Catholic nation. We're now going to be a Protestant nation. Remember, the Westminster Confession of Faith was drafted by the request of the English Parliament. Related to this, the authority of the government does not come from a social compact of we the people, but from God himself. Thus, the government must rule according to the laws of God and under Christ. By the way, if I don't have it in my suggested readings, I highly recommend Gordon Clark. I think it's Thales to Dooley uh, talking about or it might be something on, it's a title might be related to philosophy. I got to remember and put it in my notes if I don't have it. He really does a great job showing the, the way government is to be run is not by consent of the people, it's by God's authority as he declares the way it's supposed to be in the scriptures. We the people, especially a motley crew, could make it all kinds of stuff, and frankly, we are, right? Okay, section two of chapter 23. It is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrate when called thereunto in the managing whereof as they ought especially to maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth. So for that end, they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasion. Christians may serve, bottom of page 151, Christians may serve in government if they acknowledge Jesus as their highest authority and work for laws to serve him. See Psalm 2 that we sang today. See, because similarly, probably the Quakers and Anabaptists, they would argue uh, you can't take vows and oaths and you can't serve in the military. You can't serve in political office. Now, let me give this disclaimer, and I, I think this is a problem in America. A, a minister of the word of God should not also be a politician at the same time. And a politician should not be a pastor serving at the same time. That's a conflict of interest. They are two spheres of authority. They should not be in both. Because that's basically what the Catholic Church wants to be. right? That's not the way God ordained it. Uh, by the way, when I was thinking about a, a gubernatorial candidate when they were doing the, the re-vote, I called a particular uh, candidate who was a minister and I said, I need to know, according to my scriptural and confessional beliefs, I know you're a pastor. Would you also be maintaining your political role? He says, no, I'd step down from it. I said, okay, now I can vote for you. And I did. Yes? Um, so 
you were talking, of, I forget what is it, what you were talking exactly about, but a little bit ago, you were talking about how the, in the Old Testament, it used to be the church mm-hmm. and the state. Together, the uh, theocracy, yeah. So you would be arguing that the Bible says that that did not carry into the Right, and the coming of Christ through ceremonial and the judicial systems are fulfilled. Moral equity continues, um, and uh, it's not always so clear and simple. Uh, this gets back to the chapter on law. I love that you keep asking about that. Let's go back and look that together more. And if you want me to go back to that, that's another chapter we could spend a couple of 900 years on. So, yeah, um, but that's a great question. You're, you're tracking. I, I love that you're tracking. Uh, try to track with me as I keep racing on, okay? <laughs> but good job. Um, Okay, Christians may serve in government if they acknowledge Jesus as their highest authority and work for laws to serve him. This section was written against the Anabaptists who believe Christians should not hold public office. In our U.S. situation, this also means we may vote, but we should ideally vote for Christians, for as all just laws come from God, quote, in theory, none should be better fitted for such work. Martin Luther says he'd rather have a Muslim be uh, in office if they're qualified rather than a Christian if they're not. You know, I think there's something to that. The, the, the RPCNA, the Covenanters, they used to say, they used to, you were not allowed to vote until the 1980s because the nation is understood to be not officially Christian because it isn't in its constitution as much as we want to say it is. We have not said we are explicitly a Christian nation under constitution. Yes, there's a Judeo-Christian influence, but we didn't go out of our way to explicitly state it. And as my other professor, Thomas Reed, who's a li- retired librarian, said, the chickens have come home to roost in our country because we didn't. We should have. Um, nonetheless, um, ideally, you want a person who is qualified and trained for the job and is a Christian. But it's not a sin for us to vote for someone who's not. No, for a long time, my conscience wouldn't let me. Uh, uh, and I think it's also not a sin to uh, exempt from voting for someone if you think they haven't given you any good candidates so that we're not stuck in a system. Uh, put making someone savior who never will be. Uh, you know, Christ needs to be honored, long-term plan. But no, it's not a sin to vote for non-Christian. In fact, our standards, as we've gone through these chapters, are really saying that we can take vows, we can take vows and oaths to non-believers and even sinners. Yeah, so we got to be. If we vote against our conscience, that's Well, the scripture says if you sin against your conscience, you've that's sinned. Sin. Yeah, um, but I, but I think uh, I, so. It really a lot of it will come down to your own conscience. I think, okay. but we we're, we're we're allowed. To vote, but we the main thing here is we should be praying and trying to train up men to go fulfill the offices in the civil government just as much as the ministry. You know, the big reason that the world runs the, the nation into sin and horrible things is we don't have enough Christians there. Serious Christians. You know, if you believe in creationism, they'll tell you you'll never get voted for now. Why? What if we just demand it as we the people, but we don't? We're more concerned to get somebody in the office that can try to keep our 401k a little better for a little longer. We're not concerned about righteousness and holiness and truth, and so we pay for it. And one of the ways we pay for it is we're killing all of our babies. Sorry, I'm getting preachy here, but uh, you know, pray for Christian leaders in our nation if you want to see something change. But I appreciate what the... I think I shared it recently. What the preacher said at the pastor's conference for the radio a few weeks ago, he said, if our country's going to change, it's not going to be by getting Christians in office directly. It's going to be by if our church repents and we the people repent and change and the church starts to get serious and holy. He says you could have the Apostle Paul and Peter in office and it wouldn't change anything if the people in the churches are not repenting and changing. And all you have to go is look at the rhetoric of quote-unquote Christianity and politics and yeah, 
All right, I'm trying to be careful not to go too far what I want to say about it. If you want to know later, I'll tell you privately. Okay, top of page 152. A nation also may wage war upon just occasion to protect its people and its sovereignty. Wayne Spear reminds us of the context of this document. It is interesting to note that all the lay members of the Westminster Assembly were members of the English Parliament, which was then engaged in the great civil war against the forces of Charles I. Now, they literally would hear cannons firing outside sometimes while they were doing this. I mean, this wasn't a safe thing for them to be doing, traveling the way they did, gone so long from their family, especially leaving like Scotland or something, the commissioners. Um, so the 40 divines were part of Parliament? The divine, yeah, when they say the divines, oh, no, 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 excuse me. But they were commissioned by Parliament. It's the government that asked them to do this, and that's why they did. And they called for the best ministers of of all the three realms of Britain to do it. But the government asked for it. They were reporting to the government. In fact, do you know why you have the Bible verses references in it? They didn't originally provide that. The government said, hey, nice, can you come back with Bible verses, please? Yeah, it was the government that asked for that. How about that? Wouldn't be so bad, would it? So who uh, these lay members of? Uh, where are we looking at here? Uh, uh, it's interesting to note that the, the, the lay members of the Westminster Assembly were members of the English Parliament. Okay, okay. Well, they were members of the church, the state church of England. The people in Parliament were part of the church, church state church. Yeah, there was no separation here. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Okay, you're tracking better than I am. Good job. All right, section three. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the powers of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Now, this is a section the American Presbyterians edit out, some of it, okay? The government doesn't have any business calling a presbytery. It's to be advisory to help him make sure that it would be the state church is biblical. That's what this was. Like, that's what this was. This was the government calling them together to put this together, how to be a more Christian nation and church, okay? The civil government does not have a, by the way, well, but they, okay, I'm going to read it. Let me just stick to the notes. The civil government does not have authority over the church's spiritual self-government. The church does have her own formal government. We're going to go to chapters 30 and 31 of the government in the sphere of the church, spiritual sphere. This is against Erastianism, which teaches that the church is subordinate to and serves the state. Related, this is why we deincorporated to join the RPCGA. We are not subservient to the state. Our, authority, our existence is not dependent on the state. And, our, and the church has to work with the state in the civil sphere, but the state is not over us. We are not in, we're, the state is not an authority over us, as is our religious entity and who we are. Okay? Even during the Old Testament theocracy, Israel had clear divisions of king and priest, and King Uzziah suffered serious consequences for crossing the line of priestly authorization in the temple. The government wields the civic sword while the church wields the sword of the spirit. 
Still, the civil magistrate has a duty to serve and preserve the church, including suppressing blasphemies and heresies and calling for a presbyterian assembly to advise it in ensuring a pure Christian state church. The state is not a moral nor a neutral institution. So, for instance, it'd be great if our government said, I want to get the best pastors in the nation to come together here. And I want to know how we can better serve the church by making our nation's laws more according to the word of God. And then we'd get together and say, okay, Roe versus Wade has to go. And the states can't decide it. It has to be across the nation. Okay, uh, the marrying of homosexuals, that's got to go now. Okay, right, because that's more biblical and that supports the church. Absolutely. Okay. Um, the state is, okay, I read that. Uh, kings usually could make sure the priests and Levites were carrying out their proper work. Kings usually were the cause of Israel's religious reformation or her deterioration. Here is taught, are you ready for this? This is a, this is a 25 cent word. This is a trivia. Uh, I don't think it's on the church test, but we, this is teaching establishmentarianism. Or it's teaching anti-disestablishmentarianism. Okay? Officially supporting an official national church. And we, we believe that's true. That's right. Now, this is a, a lot of the Presbyterians want to get rid of this in America. You know why? Because it's better than what we have. Yes, it's going to have corruptions and problems. It's better than what we have. There should be a church. The govern, our country should say we are Christian. And, you know, the church should be Presbyterian. It should be run by the Westminster Standards. You don't like that? Sorry. I'll die for that. It should, if it was, the world would be way better than it is. And that's why the world was a lot better than it used to be when this started infiltrating the world. Okay. But it means that we, we, uh, most, most people would teach they don't think there should be a state church. And a lot of Presbyterians deny that today with their American version of it. The American Presbyterian Church reflected in most Presbyterian denominations today, such as the PCA, the OPC, uh, they reworded this section after Kingdom of Heaven. Also in, 20 section, in chapter 20, section 4, and chapter 31, verses sections 1 and 2 that relate in the confession. Uh, in 1788, changing it to what they teach is disestablishmentarianism. There should be no state church, they say. The Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America has its testimony alongside the Confession of Faith, so they don't change it. However, their testimony qualifies when they take exception. And in its constitution, they reject these same sections uh, after the colon, along with parts of 31 sections 1 and 2. But more related to that in the mediatorial reign of Christ when we get to the, the government of the church uh, and, and in this section. The confession here decisively old, upholds the classic two kingdoms view. Christ reigns over nations not as mediator but as the son of God. Either way, Christ is Lord over civil governments and they ought to be officially Christian. See Fesco's discussion of Gillespie's work on the floor of the assembly in footnote 366 below. Gillespie worked very hard to change the wording to not speak of Christ over the nation, but Christ as God, not mediator over nations. So he changed it to God. There's a huge debate in that mediatorial reign stuff. I give you a lot of footnotes if you want to look into it. I had to go through that for years to figure it out. But Gillespie definitely, I think, has it right. And his Aaron Rod Blossoming, I'm going to reference, is excellent. See also in your confession of faith, 
pages 16 and 17, the ratification of 1647 by the Scots and its qualifications. So the EPC Australia, our close friends, fully subscribe to the Confession of Faith as understood by the Free Church of Scotland's disruption of 1843. A lot of this is for your quick reference if you want to get into it. I'm not going to talk too much about it. More on this will be discussed with chapter 31, paragraph 2. This topic relates to King James and Charles' belief in the divine right of kings to run the church in place of the Pope. So that's what's happening. They're saying we're no longer going to be under the Roman Catholic Church. But we're still going to have the state run the church. It's going to be the king's the head of the church instead of the Pope now. That's what was happening for a long time. We write, and, and by the way, Parliament is saying, no, we don't want that anymore. But sadly, Parliament wants to be head of the church now. That's the problem. We rightly affirm that Jesus alone is king and head of the church, and he governs the church through the plurality of elders locally and presbyters and general assembly or synod more broadly. The state may not. This is why Calvin was insisting we, the, ch- the church is in charge of who gets to take of the Lord's Supper and who should be barred from it, not the government. But you see, at that time, it's like, oh, we don't want to ruffle feathers with some of those guys. You know. No, the church should be in decision of these things, not the government. There is, however, a long precedent of governments calling on the church and working with her under Christ over the people. For instance, when Christianity became the official religion in the Roman Empire, it was through Emperor Constantine, who himself called the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, that gave us the church's Nicene Creed. We are so thankful for that creed, but it came because Constantine. I know there's a lot of debates. Was he really a Christian? He had some goofy stuff, but nonetheless... He called essentially like a presbytery. They had it, and we had some really important doctrines settled against heresy. The, by the way, keep that in mind with a quote I'm going to give you by Thomas Watson at the end here. The main thing to gather here is that nations and governments are not a religious nor a moral, excuse me, are not a religious nor a moral. That means they're not non-religious. For they are made of men who are accountable to King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Heeding Psalm 2, nations would be wise to affirm and support Christianity as its true religion. Presently, the USA is constitutionally a principled pluralist nation that has naturally degraded into a sanctioned religion of pagan, autonomous humanism. And if you don't want to hear that, open your eyes. If you allow principal pluralism, which means any religion can go, this is where it happens. Satanists want to have their statue of Satan next to the Ten Commandments. It is important to remember that the Westminster Assembly was convened not by any church, but by Parliament. Reformed theologians in Scotland and England were committed to the idea that the magistrates had the responsibility to preserve the one true religion in all three kingdoms. That's uh, Fesco talking. Now, before I continue... The churches are the ones that ratify it for the church. So like the the official church of Scotland, which was the state church, they ratified these things. You'll see that at the beginning of the confession, the catechisms, the directories for worship, Presbyterian church government, the church officially ratifies it for the church. Okay, But not thinking of itself as not the state church. This is not the same thing as theonomy, and this gets to Abraham's questions, which chapter 19, section 4 rejects. We've already gone there. Here, a famous exhortation by Reverend Andrew Melville to King James VI in Scotland, while he grabbed him by the sleeve in private discussion, is worthy of noting. Try to picture this, King James. 
Pastor Andrew Melville grabs him by the sleeve, poverty, and I'm not going to try to say it with a Scottish brogue because then I'll sound Japanese. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. But he says this, Sire, I must tell you that there are two kingdoms and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the head of the church, whose subject King, uh, whose subject King James VI is, and of whose kingdom he is not a head nor a Lord, but a member of. And they whom Christ hath called and commanded to watch over his church and govern his spiritual kingdom have sufficient authority and power from him so to do, which no Christian king nor prince should control or discharge, but assist and support. Otherwise, they are not faithful subjects to Christ. He says, you're king of the commonwealth under Christ and should be supporting Christ's church, but you're a member of Christ's church and only Jesus is king of it. You have no right to pretend you're the head of it and decide whatever you want. This quote essentially applies the balanced ideas taught in this section that of the exercise of two spheres of sovereignty, civil and ecclesiastical, under the one reign of Christ, Dixon explains, church and civil power are not as such powers of subordinate but coordinate. That's an excellent quote. By the way, David Dixon wrote The Sum of Saving Knowledge, with, I think, James Durham, that they think that is truth. It, it's not ratified authority, officially authoritatively, but it's in our Westminster Confessions. It's an excellent document on the whole. He's a contemporary. His book, Victories, Truths, Vindicated, something like that, I quoted a lot in here, and that's what I'm quoting of right now. So he's a contemporary, and this is what he's saying we're teaching. Church and civil power are not as such powers of subordinate but coordinate. That means... The church is not subordinate to the state as it governs the church. And the state is not subordinate to the church, Roman Catholics. The church has its own authoritative government. The state has its own authoritative government. Neither is subordinate to the other. They work coordinately, both under Christ. We need to sort that out in America. Okay, section four, and thanks for bearing with me here. I'm racing through. This is the last section. Then I'll give you a little bit of Thomas Watson and uh, the assignments for next time. It is, by the way, there's a whole bunch of footnotes on a lot of this stuff. It's if, if it's interesting you, if it's of your interest, especially the whole two kingdom stuff I keep throwing out, that's very controversial stuff. It shouldn't be. As I point out, uh, Gillespie and his Aaron Rods blossoming, he spends an enormous part of chapter five, five talking about the two kingdoms. And it is his whole argument against Erastianism, which is the point of his whole book. And so I don't get, I think people just don't read enough. Okay, pastors don't read enough. Uh, to be fair, I've only read it a couple years ago. Section 4 of chapter 23. It is the duty of people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute and other dues, to obey their lawful commands, and to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. I'm saying that loudly because of all the rhetoric out there the last couple of years. Nor free the people from their due obedience to them, from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. Much less hath the Pope any power and jurisdiction over them in their dominions or over any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominions or lives if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. Notice they're going after the Roman Catholic Church a number of times here. Roman Catholic Church wants to be head of church and state under the Pope. That's why, uh, what's their place? Uh, 
their fake Zion in Rome. What is it called? Their uh, yeah, the Vatican. I mean, it's like its own state, city, state, right? You know, church, state, um, and that's what they want throughout the world. But let me say this: Do we pray for our government officials as much as we complain about them? We are commanded to pray for them. First Timothy two verse one. Even when they are oppressive, should obey their. We should obey their commands and be subject to their God-given authority with civil disobedience if called upon to sin. They call upon us to sin. We disobey civilly, while they are bound, and we're willing to be sacrificed for it. Uh, while they are bound to obey Christ, even if they do not recognize Him, we must recognize Christ's allowing them to be in office. The right of the representatives of the state to receive respect and obedience is not grounded in their character, but in their office. That's green. Now, I do. Let me throw this little thing in here. I'm not trying to argue that there could never be a place for a rebellion. Uh, there's the lesser magistrate stuff. But I would argue that if you look at the scriptures, what they emphasize is submitting to authority. And uh, people like to try to make an exception in Romans. I think they're really trying to force too much. And they make Romans 13 all about that and not what it's about, which is what? Submit to the civil authorities as the ministers of God. The Roman Catholic Church has always sought to steal or usurp state authority in anti-Christian rule over nations, and it always will. That's why... Uh, we agree with our text and we don't take exception with this either when it identifies it as the Antichrist, um, the movement. Naturally, th- there will be no perfect world government until Jesus Christ returns to fully consummate his kingdom of heaven on earth. Thus, we should pray wholeheartedly, thy kingdom come. Now, that's going to want to make you think about where we get to at the end, end times theology, uh, amil, post-mill, pre-mill, all that stuff. I'll give you a heads up, Amil. But, uh, you know, post-mill, post-mill is tolerated, but you're going to get it from an Amil guy. Okay, but uh, I do refer you to some of the quotes in the footnotes on that by um, John Murray. Basically, he sums it up as, the government's never going to be a perfect Christian state until Christ comes back. We should never put our hope in worldly government. But we should always try to make it more a Christian government. We should live for the ideal, and it'll never happen until Christ comes back. I think that's the right way to look at it. Okay. Some closing thoughts. Um, I have the word arguments. I want to change that to thoughts. I'm going to get my pen here. I'm not sure why I said arguments. Closing thoughts. And then... uh... Okay. I've got a couple typos to fix before I publish it. Okay. Uh, In terms of PDFs on our sermon audio page. Closing thoughts by Thomas Watson. From the Ten Commandments on the Fifth Commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The political father, he talks about there's different kinds of fathers, and he starts with this. The political father, the magistrate, that means the government, the civil government. The scripture calls kings fathers. Quote, kings shall be thy nursing fathers. Isaiah 49, 23 if I'm reading that uh, Latin numeral right. Such nursing fathers were Constantine. Now, he goes on to talk about other nursing fathers in the Bible, and but did you notice that? I'm highlighting it. Who does he say is a nursing father of the church? Constantine. Watson identifies Constantine as a nursing father of the church. Remember, we got the Nicene Creed from him. The Roman emperor who became Christian in some way makes Christianity the official religion of Rome, the Roman Empire. 
And he's the one that calls upon the council of Nicaea, where we get our first major confession. Creed. I think that's pretty significant to notice. He's identifying him as a father, a nurse, a father of the church. Uh, I'll go on. Their place deserves honor. God has set these political fathers to preserve order and harmony in a nation and to prevent those state convulsions which otherwise might ensue. These political fathers are to be honored. 1 Peter 2.17 This honor is to be shown by a civil respect to their persons and a cheerful submission to their laws so far as they agree and run parallel with God's law. Kings are to be prayed for, 1 Timothy 2.1. Now from the Beatitudes, Thomas Watson. The magistrate is God's lieutenant on earth. Though a private person must not render to any man evil for evil, Romans 12.17, yet a magistrate may. The evil of punishment for the evil of offense. The magistrate sins if he does not draw it out. Too many Excuse me, too much lenity in a magistrate is not meekness, but injustice. Okay, I want to read that again. People are always talking about justice, 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 my rights. And we don't want the government to get involved or interfere. But he's saying too much lenity, too much lack of government involving in the things they should be and punishing wickedness and doing bad and getting involved with what they should be doing. It's injustice. That's what God ordained them to do for a nation. Okay, by the way, the church does better in any Christian nation, regardless of all the challenges and difficulties that can arise in a sinful world. Okay, I got there, uh, the third bullet there, suggested readings. Uh, Mrs. Renner, you might want to fly to Pittsburgh if you can't find it elsewhere, go to my seminary's library. It's called Jethva and His Vow by David Marcus. I think he gets it right, but it sounds like Joel Beakey does too, so maybe just go to your husband's uh, uh, footnotes in his Reformation Bible. Is that where you got it from? Yeah, okay. I'm going to go look at that. You mind sending that to me, actually, Ron? I have it, but I'll... Okay, actually, you know, I have it. I shouldn't stick it on you. I got that, too. Okay, there's a lot of stuff I give you here. Um, some lectures to listen to. You could consider, not, not mine. I do want to point out that I, on page 156, I highlight my sermon on Matthew 5, 33 to 37, Be Men and Women of Your Word, and that'll fully, more fully spell out the questions about what's Jesus talking about, about don't take an oath or a vow here, related to, that is... Don't qualify it with something that limits your re- reason to have to keep it. Um, I'm going to scroll down here. I'm giving you a lot of stuff. Lex Rex is really important, and that would relate to... I haven't read it yet. I need to read it. That relates a lot to the idea of uh, when lesser magistrates can have uh, can take over the greater magistrates um, and uh, just war, that kind of stuff. I've not read it yet. I know Ron read it, and uh, it's pretty difficult work, I've heard many people say. Aaron's Rod Blossoming is a great one. It's a pretty busy, big one. He said, I didn't have time and energy to write this, but I did it because it's so needed, it almost killed me. Similar to, what is it, uh, one of the guys that wrote a big thing on the, the King James. I'm, I think you would remember probably. Uh, no, one of the other ones. Uh, Bergen. Dean Bergen. They took their sabbatical, their vacation, and they said nearly killed me, but I did it, and I did it very carefully to give this to the church. They need it. Okay. Um, I want to come to Christ and Civilization we have in our library. 
Okay, I want to scroll down to the toward the bottom. Just a reminder of our article on Romans 13, submit to the government to serving God to save lives. That's something we put together to justify our practice and procedure through the difficulty of navigating COVID. And we're recognizing two-sphere sovereignty with an overlap, such as the government is allowed to require exit signs at the door and occupancy levels. I know some people don't think that that's as, as simple as it is, but you can, you can see our apology for that because we were criticized for it. But we had to think hard about it. We went to these scriptures, and we actually changed where we thought we were going with the direction of our decision. Um, you can see uh, also that link. We put a whole bunch of commentaries, about 25 pages, of excerpts from old and new commentaries about Romans 13. And I think, boy, I'd like to see a bunch of Americans go read that. Um, and then uh, my sermon on the government must quickly put out anarchy. And then my sermon on responsible government must show respect and restraint. Those are two sermons I preached close to each other with a lot of stuff going on during that time a few years ago, looking at both aspects of it. Government should not abuse, but the government also uh, should do its job. Okay. That's it. Next week, we're going to go one chapter of marriage and divorce, chapter 24 in the corresponding scriptures. You can see the larger and shorter catechisms with their scriptures and corresponding script, uh, with their references and score, corresponding scriptures. That's mainly going to be in the Ten Commandments um, related to the, I want to say the sixth, so, uh, seventh, I think. I always get it goofed up if I'm not looking directly. I'm going to close in prayer. Thanks for all your great questions. That's why we're late. Oh, Josh wants to keep us longer. Abraham wants to keep us longer. We've got to try to close. Is that the wrong date? I did it again. It's June 1st. Thank you. I was just thinking next Tuesday was June 1st, and I was saying, oh, we've got to have our session meeting next week. Sorry about that. Next week, Lord willing. Okay, so next week, chapter 24 of Marriage and Divorce, and then you see the larger and shorter catechism references I give you to read ahead and their scriptures. Remember, when it has the same overlapping scriptures, feel free to, you don't have to read them all a second time, of course, if you want to. Okay, let's close in prayer. Thanks so much for staying late. I want to blame all of you, many of you, for making go longer. But if you didn't, I probably would have figured it out. So, okay, let's close in prayer. Lord in heaven, we do thank you. I thank you for these Berean spirits who have such good questions and want to understand and connect the dots in knowledge and application. And I thank you, Lord, how willing they are to stay late on a Wednesday night. Bless them, Lord, to get home safely. Bless them and have particularly good sleep as they've sacrificed their time for you and your word that we would better understand your scriptures on these important things. And we do thank you for the Westminster Standards standing on the shoulders of the Reformation creeds and confessions and the early church creeds that came before them. We thank you for all this hard work, this painstaking work. Thank you for these people who are willing to study to show themselves approved and have come with Berean spirits. Bless them, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Send it out safe. Give us good rest. We lift up your name and pray that you will help us to be truthful in all that we do to reflect God, especially when we take it to formal oath and vow. And Lord, that we would keep our commitments, especially in our marriages and in our churches. And Lord, that uh, we would respect our government and seek peace as much as we are able and seek to be a good influence in all the things we can, that we might have a voice, that we might have an ear to appeal to them, to have the country serve King Jesus explicitly and guided by the church. We know these things seem impossible, but it's happened before. That's why we have these standards, and nothing is impossible with God. Ultimately, we bow our knee to King Jesus and confess with our tongues that he is our Lord and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we take heed to the warning in Psalm 2 for ourselves. And we bow our knee and we kiss the Son 
that he would not be angry with us and that we are blessed and that we will live in his kingdom, which is forever and ever. One nation worldwide under God, under Christ. What a glorious eternal day that will be. Keep our eyes on Christ, the author and finish of our faith and the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name and all your people said, Amen. Amen.